The first time that I ever set foot in a Buddhist temple, I don't think I really believed in demons yet. I was in Chiang Mai, Thailand on a summer mission trip. I was 19 years old, and our first stop right after we went to the airport was to visit this temple. It was elaborate. It was beautiful. It had columns and carvings and colors everywhere. And as I wandered around in this Buddhist temple, I saw a monk in an orange robe sitting off to the side on a mat. And he had a pile of white strings in front of him on his mat. They were just plain little white strings about six inches long. And when people would come up to him, he would tie one of the white strings around their wrist. This monk saw me watching him and he waved for me to come over, so I did. And he motioned for me to hold out my arm, so I did. And he tied one of these little white strings around my wrist. And he didn't seem to speak a lot of English, but he told me, this will bring you a good luck spirit. And I thought, cool, I could use some more good luck in my life. Why not? And this is a neat little souvenir. So I put a few coins in his donation basket and went on my way with my new bracelet. Later that night, we got back to where we were staying with a Thai Christian family and we were unpacking and we were making dinner and our host saw this white string bracelet around my wrist and she froze. She stopped in her tracks. And she pulled me out into another room to talk to me and she said urgently, did you get that bracelet at the temple today? And I said, yeah. (laughs) And she said, didn't the monk tell you what it was? And I said, yeah, he told me it would bring me a good luck spirit. And she didn't understand. Why would you accept that? She said, you have the spirit of God. You wanna invite other spirits into your life? And that was when I realized my mistake. Thailand is 99% Buddhist, which is mixed with a form of animism, which is beliefs in spirits. And the Christians that we were going to meet there were converts from this animistic form of Buddhism. They all used to worship in temples like that and pray to those spirits and wear bracelets just like my little souvenir, believing that these would invite certain spirits into your life. And they didn't become Christians because they stopped believing in those spirits. They became Christians because they encountered the Holy Spirit of the living God who's more powerful than all other spirits. So not only now do they reject those spirits they used to believe in and pray to, they recognize them for what they are as described in the Bible, which is demons. And so what these little white string bracelets do, well, they welcome spirits into your life, a.k.a. demons, Now, I want to be clear, you can't accidentally summon a demon to possess you just by putting on a bracelet. Spiritual warfare is something that happens in our hearts through our choices. So this little string bracelet, this little piece of white string was powerless over me who has the spirit of God. It was a meaningless little piece of string. It's only powerful because of what you believe about it. And I didn't believe anything about it. I didn't even know what it was. So when our host confronted me, when the host told me what the bracelet was, I had two options for how I could respond. Option one, thank you very much for the heads up, for letting me know, but I have freedom in Christ to do whatever I want, and this piece of string is powerless over me because I have the Spirit of God. God will protect me from demons, thank you very much, so I'm going to keep wearing my new bracelet and you can't stop me. Of course I went with option two. I tore that thing off as fast as I could and threw it straight into the trash and I learned a few valuable lessons while I was at it. Number one, if you're visiting a pagan temple and a pagan priest asks you to do something, probably don't do it. (laughs) Number two, yes, 
I have freedom in Christ to wear this little white string around my wrist. But listen, there's something more important than freedom. We place such a high value on freedom because freedom matters, but it isn't the ultimate value. It's not the most important thing. None of us would have hesitated to tear off that bracelet that we were otherwise free to wear because you know what's more important than freedom? Love. That's what we're focusing on this week in a series we're in called Free Indeed. The world's version of freedom, the freedom the world celebrates, is selfish. It's about having total control over your life and nobody else gets to tell you what to do. But the true freedom that Christ offers us, that lets us be free indeed, it looks different. It doesn't set us free from all other masters to serve ourselves. It sets us free from ourselves to serve the only one good master in the universe, Jesus Christ. So for Christians, freedom's not the highest value that we have, and it's not unlimited. We limited ourselves. Look at this slide. This is what we talked about last week, these three ways that we voluntarily limit our own freedom in Christ that we learned about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We make choices within our freedom that are profitable, that are constructive, and that keep us from being mastered by the things of this world. So that's how we use our freedom to help benefit ourselves spiritually. This week's lesson is a lot harder. How can we use our freedom in Christ to benefit other people? What are you supposed to do when your freedom in Christ comes into conflict with another Christian? Who wins? Well, the answer is the same every single time. Love. But as you're going to see in our text today, that is a lot easier said than done. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we'll start in verse 23. Paul writes, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is profitable. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is constructive. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this meat has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved." Okay, let's back up. At the beginning of this passage in verse 23, we were talking about freedom, what's permissible, what's profitable, and then all of a sudden we end up in a meat market. Did you notice that in the next verse? How did we end up in this meat market? Okay, let's back up. Paul says, listen, you're free to uh, eat whatever meat you want that's sold in the meat market without question. Okay, now that's a biblical command I can get behind. I walk through HEB, I see all kinds of meats, I have no questions of conscience. I eat whatever meat I want. Take a look at this slide. This is the temple of Apollo. 
in Corinth. The top picture is what it looks like today. You can go there and see it. The bottom picture is an artist's reconstruction of what this temple might have looked like in Paul's day. This was one of several temples that dominated the skyline, the economy, and the culture of Corinth and the people who lived there. Now, the Corinthian church was all made up of former pagans who'd lived their entire lives in the shadows of these temples. Paul himself had lived in Corinth for a year and a half, so he definitely knew about these Greek and Roman pagan temples and what went on there. One of the most important things that happened in the temple of Apollo and all the others was animal sacrifice. I want to be clear about what kind of animal sacrifice we're talking about. This was different than the type of animal sacrifice that God commanded the Israelites to do in the Old Testament. That sacrifice in the Old Testament was about purity. It was about offering something to God to atone for sin and purify yourself on his mercy. Pagan animal sacrifice is a transaction. You're buying something from the gods. You're bartering with them because you want something in return. It's just like modern works-based salvation. You demand something from from the gods in exchange for this animal. And once the animal was killed, the priest would burn it on the altar, burn some of it for the gods, and then cook the rest of the meat. And they would either give it out to the people and have an elaborate feast right there at the temple in honor of this god they'd sacrifice the animal to, or they would go sell the meat at the local meat markets. That's the meat we're talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Okay, that's the meat market that Paul just took us to in this passage. And you can see why it's a moral dilemma, right? If you're a Christian who lived in this pagan city, this meat has spiritual associations with your past life, okay? It's just like the Christians that I met in Thailand, how they got cautious when they saw my white string bracelet. For the Corinthian Christians, false gods like Apollo used to be very, very real to them. Those false gods, those demonic powers used to hold power over their souls before Jesus Christ saved them. So when you put yourself in their shoes, you can see why this might be a spiritual obstacle for you to go to one of these feasts and eat this meat or to go shop in the meat market and you might be buying meat that had just been sacrificed to one of these pagan gods. Paul talks about this earlier in chapter 10. If you scroll back up or look back a page in verse 19 of chapter 10, Paul's talking about this dilemma of the meat sacrificed to idols and he says, Do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Fair enough, right? Paul says, look, idols don't matter. Meat doesn't matter, but demons matter. Demons are real. And you don't mess around with demons and steer clear of other people worshiping demons wherever you can. Question. What if 99% of the people in your city, your whole community, your coworkers, maybe your immediate family, all participates in these ritual feasts and sacrifices and eats this kind of meat? What are you supposed to do? So the church in Corinth is divided, and some of us think, look, idols are nothing. It doesn't matter. We can go feast with them on this meat because these demons are powerless over us. And the rest of us are thinking, um, hello, demons, why would you do that? Why would you associate with that? And Paul in this passage is explaining how to navigate this area of our freedom in Christ where two groups of Christians with valid moral arguments on both sides are coming into conflict about a neutral thing. So don't get lost in the example of the meat. Just think about a neutral thing about which well-meaning Christians can disagree. And what we'll see in the way Paul talks through this is that the highest value that he advocates for is not freedom. It's something more important than freedom, love. 
So with that context, let's look back through this passage we just read. It's a short passage. Start with me back in verse 25, and let's read through this. Right away in verse 25, Paul clarifies the bottom line. He says, meat cannot be sinful in and of itself. Eat whatever you want that you see in the meat market and don't worry about your conscience. You're free to do it. And he quotes from Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it is also the Lord's. It's all spiritually safe for you to interact with. Now that's important because a lot of religions don't believe that. A lot of religions believe that some geographical areas like Mount Olympus are more sacred than others or less spiritual than others. Or some animals like cows or cats are more sacred than others. Or some people groups are more holy than others. And Paul points out right away, there's nothing in the natural world God made that's sinful for you to interact with or that's holy for you to interact with. God made everything. Everything's God's. You can eat whatever you want. Even after the the demonic dedication, scientifically, it's just a piece of meat. And metaphysically, good and evil happens in your heart, not on your plate. It happens through your choices. So, so by rejecting that association or not believing it, you protect your heart from its power. Remember this spectrum that we looked at last week. Start with me at the top. Everything is permissible for me. That's freedom in Christ. You can, once you believe in God, you're free to do whatever you want. But look at the two boundaries on either side of the slide. Because you serve Christ, there are things you cannot do. And because you serve Christ, there are things you must do, okay? That's clear that your allegiance to Christ gives you certain limits and obligations. But see, in the middle, that's where most decisions happen. There's that huge gray area where we're not given an explicit command or limitation. And so Paul, right here at the beginning of our passage, says meat is right there in the middle. It does not have a moral connotation one way or the other. So how are we supposed to navigate it when Christians disagree with each other? So verse 27, Paul talks to the Christians who have a problem with the meat, right? The Corinthian vegetarians, the ones who look at the meat and say, no, that's morally wrong, I can't eat it. And look what he says to them. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. As Christians, Paul is saying, we have different standards when it comes to believers and unbelievers in the way we interact. Listen to what Paul said in chapter 5 of this letter. He said, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? God will judge those outside the church. Christians are never called to judge non-Christians ever or to try to alter their actions. We hold each other within the church to God's standards, of course, But we shouldn't tell non-Christians to change their behavior to follow our scriptures, which they don't believe, or to obey our king, whose authority they don't recognize. Non-Christians are citizens of a different kingdom. They have no reason to follow biblical commands or care about meat like this. In your dealings with non-Christians, Paul says, you don't try to correct their actions. You try to correct their beliefs. You don't try to change their habits. You try to change their hearts. And so if you're in a moral gray area and there's something you have a dilemma with and you're in the context of unbelievers who you might have spiritual influence over to help them, then your freedom has met its limits. You don't get to object to that piece of meat, even if you have a problem with it. Within the gray area, you defer to unbelievers to preserve your witness to them. Okay, that's a little tough. That kind of steps on my toes. But now we get to the really hard part, okay? Now we're going to offend the other Corinthians, the carnivorous Corinthians, the one who think eating the meat sacrificed to the idols is totally okay. In verse 28, Paul says, but if somebody says to you, this meat has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. 
I'm not refer, I, I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. What we're talking about here is a fellow believer objecting because a pagan wouldn't have cared whether the meat had been sacrificed. So a fellow believer leans over and tells you, hey, this meat was offered and sacrificed to an idol. That means they're raising a moral objection saying, hey, I don't think we should eat this because this has been offered to an idol. And Paul says, the second you realize that your brother morally objects to eating this, you cannot eat it. I know your conscience is fine with that, but I'm not talking about your conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. If his conscience would be offended, your freedom is cut off and you cannot do that thing. That's a hard teaching. When Paul says to limit my freedom at the top of the slide here, for the sake of their conscience, here's my question. No, go ahead back to, yeah. For the sake of their conscience, here's my question. How much do I have to sacrifice for you in this area, right? There are things I have to do. There are things I can't do. I won't budge on those. But within the gray area, I'm supposed to sacrifice. How far do I have to go? How much do I have to give up for you? How far do I have to limit my freedom for the sake of your feelings and your conscience? I would like, if possible, a numerical formula, wouldn't you? That we could put up on a chalkboard and say, okay, you feel like this. Here's how strongly you feel. Here's how strong. We don't get that. What if you're not okay with certain movies that I like to watch or certain TV shows that I like to watch? I'm just never allowed to watch that in your presence ever again, even though my conscience is perfectly clean and I have no problem with it? What if, what if I'm morally fine using certain words and certain phrases that offend you? I have to censor myself around you in the natural way I am in my sense of humor just because it hurts your feelings? Where does this end? How much do I have to sacrifice? What if you're not okay with politics? You abstain from ever thinking about politics for moral reasons. I'm just never allowed to talk about politics around you? What if you're morally opposed to drinking alcohol? But I think it's fine as long as you're responsible. You get to set that boundary for me? I don't get a say? What about dancing? What about COVID masks? What about parenting styles? What about, what about? You're saying, I just always have to give up my freedom in any situation to cater to whoever happens to be the most sensitive Christian in the room. What about church? We all have opinions and preferences about church. How much do I have to sacrifice to make sure that you feel comfortable when you come to church? Do I have to give up the songs that I love? or the schedule that I prefer, or the type of preaching that I benefit the most from, or classes, or who gets to do what, or how we do communion, or whatever, fill in the blank. This is a hard teaching. I don't like getting told no. I don't like having limits. This makes me feel vulnerable, like I'm totally at your mercy. Like what if you're really sensitive? What if your conscience won't allow a lot of things that I think are just fine? Okay, what if somebody just makes up uh, an objection and uses that to control the rest of us? Look, I know Paul wrote this, but Paul never met the millennial generation, okay? He had no clue how easy it is to offend these people. <laughs> how can it be fair that I'm the one that has to pay for it with my freedom? Well, Paul did predict this. He took the words right out of my mouth 2,000 years ago. Look at verse 29. He says it, for why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? How is that fair? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, how come I'm denounced because of something I thank God for? Paul's right there with us on these questions. Why do I have to defer to your hypersensitivities? How do you get to put limits on my rights? 
How could a loving God demand that I alter my behavior to accommodate your weakness? Do you hear what this sounds like as I'm saying this? I, 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 me, 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 my rights, my freedoms. What am I allowed to do? Why do I have to limit myself? Listen, why is any of the stuff that I just listed more important to you than wearing a white string bracelet? What does it matter? Where did you get that freedom anyway that you're so eager to wield against everybody else? If you don't care about what might offend your brothers and sisters or what might make them stumble, you're not loving them well. If you have certain areas within your freedom in Christ where you've decided, I don't care what anybody else says or thinks, this area, I have freedom here and I won't budge. I have a right to this habit or to this belief and nobody's gonna stop me. Then I would tell you lovingly, that's an area of your life that you have not surrendered to Jesus Christ. And by selfishly clinging to your rights and your freedom at the expense of your brothers and sisters, you're sinning against God and against them. You're trying to rule over that part of your life with your own ego instead of submitting it to the will of God. Maybe some people are too easily offended. Maybe some people get fake offended to control others. That's not your problem. Paul is perfectly clear. The word of God is clear on this point. He says, sacrifice your freedom as far as you can for the sake of not offending or harming other believers. You know why? Because you know what's always more important than freedom? Love. Jesus Christ, the all-powerful God of the universe, had no limit on his freedom until he humbled himself, until he took on a weak human form and became a servant, touching diseased human flesh, feeling hunger and cold and sorrow, bleeding under human whips and dying on a human cross to the sound of mocking human voices he created. What's more important even than the cosmic freedom of an almighty limitless God? Love. Love for you who can offer him nothing in return. Our freedom was bought with nothing less than the holy blood of Jesus Christ. Are we really gonna use it to hurt each other? Are we actually gonna use the freedom that Christ bought with his blood to tear his family apart? Here's the answer Paul gives in verse 31. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in every way. Paul right here, hears the church asking, what about me? What about my rights? What about my freedom? And he says, what about God's glory? Take the spotlight off yourself for a minute and fix your eyes on the purpose of your existence, which is the glory of God, not you. And after you do that, if you really do that, you're not gonna want to cause anyone to stumble. You're gonna try to please everyone in every way. So here's where we end up after this hard, hard teaching this morning. Paul says, try to please everyone in every way, okay? And we had this question we were looking at earlier. How much do I have to sacrifice when it comes to the gray area? That's the wrong question. If you're asking that question, you're thinking about yourself. Here's the question. How can I sacrifice more in this area? Take this question home with you. Think about this question every time you start worrying about your rights and your freedom. Look, it's not about the extent of your rights. 
It's about the extent of your love. It's not about protecting your freedom. It's about unleashing your humility. How can you sacrifice more? Doesn't the world look so different when you look at it through the lens of this question? How much more can I give? Doesn't it look so much more beautiful when we prioritize love for our brothers and sisters over our own freedom? Look, for your brother or sister who's more sensitive than you are when it comes to movies or TV shows or more easily offended by certain words or jokes, how can you sacrifice more than you're currently sacrificing for their conscience? For my brother who's more sensitive about COVID precautions, for my sister who's more sensitive about political issues, for the believer who's more sensitive about their parenting style or drinking alcohol or fill in the blank, whatever it is, How can I give more than I'm giving right now to accommodate their conscience? How can I sacrifice more than I'm already sacrificing to make sure they're not offended? All of us have relationships with people who are more sensitive than we are in some areas. That's how it is when you live in a family. And all of us have more we can give. All of us can follow the example of Jesus who gave everything for your brothers and sisters, how can you then look at them and be selfish with your own freedom he bought for you? Where are you holding back this morning? What about church? We all have preferences and opinions about how church should operate, how we should do Sunday mornings, and there are answers. There are ways we should do that. But set all of that aside for a minute and just look at this question. How can I sacrifice more? I mean, what would church look like if all of us quit thinking more about acting to the extent of our freedom and trying to protect our rights and started looking for ways we could sacrifice even more for each other? I know you've given up things about the way we do church. I know you've made sacrifices about the way church works. None of us get exactly what we want when we come here. But you could give more. You could bend a little more. You're free, but you could sacrifice a little more than you are. What would a church look like where we all brought that mentality every week? That church could change lives. That church could support families, could inspire a city, could change the world. That church could be a city on a hill, an example of unity that our fractured world needs so much right now, modeled after the sacrifice of Christ. That church starts with you. True freedom, being free indeed, It's not a life without any rules. It's not a life serving no master. Being free indeed means serving the only true and good master in the universe, Jesus Christ. And serving him means sacrificing for the people he loves, for the people he died for, for everyone in every way. So this week, take that question with you and start asking yourself, how much more can I give? How much more can I sacrifice? How can I give up more of my freedom for my brothers and sisters who Christ died for? Let's be a people who show the world what true love and true freedom look like. Let's be a people who are free indeed. Pray with me. God, we thank you for buying our freedom with the price of your blood, for setting us free from sin and death and from slavery to ourselves, but also for setting us free from the law and from legalism. We thank you for being a good and trustworthy master. Forgive us when we use the freedom you bought for us to hurt each other, to assert our own rights instead of sacrificing for each other. God, this is a hard teaching this morning. 
It's hard for me, and I know it's hard for so many people here, and I pray that you would help this message to land generously and to bear fruit and to be effective in all of our lives to make this family stronger, more loving, and more focused on you. In Jesus' name, amen.